<clears throat> so when we left off, Stephen had just been stoned to death. And as it turns out, while he was being stoned, there was a man named Saul there who uh, witnessed his stoning, witnessed Stephen's cries to for the Lord Jesus to receive his spirit, for him not to hold the sin against those who were stoning him. We're going to meet Saul again later, but <clears throat> he witnessed this. So we'll pick up. Uh, we'll just pick up in chapter 8, verse 1. Hey, Miss Judy. And uh, we'll take this one section at a time, I guess. So the kind of the title of this uh, section I've called is, is Philip tills the soil and plants the seeds. And then later Satan plants a tear among the wheat. Let's start there in verse 1, chapter 8. <clears throat> so, they stoned Stephen. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against him. Having said this, he fell asleep. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, of Judea and Samaria. That's a that's a new word I just made up. Judaria. <laughs> this will be my new word for Israel from now on. That's Judaria. Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. So... Let's just notice there that a few things. <clears throat> yeah. So that word right there in verse 1, when it says a great persecution began against the church, that's the second time in Acts that this, this group has been referred to as a church. Then in verse 3, Saul, it says again, Saul began ravaging the church. So it's well established now that this is an old church. We're going to call it the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. Okay. Why don't we call it Grace Point at Jerusalem? Grace <laughs> Point at Jerusalem? I like that. Because if y'all notice, so far everything has happened in Jerusalem. You know? And um, it's almost like they forgot the commandment to go forth. First in Jerusalem, then Judea, then in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. I mean, there's there are all these converts happening in Jer in Jerusalem. There's great, you know, this big crusade going on, and they're kind of staying in one spot here. But Saul began ravaging the church. That word "ravaging" is a I don't I don't I can't remember the word in Greek, but it's the picture there is of like a what I read was. Like a wild boar tearing through a vineyard. It's like destroy. He's, he's trying to destroy the church. And it's just helpful to point out, you know, that there's no building. These these, these people don't have a church building. In, in our day and age, we, when we say the church, we, we usually think of a building. Like if somebody said, well, they tore down, they destroyed this church, we would think they tore the building down. That's not what this is. This is the body. They, they just kind of had house. They went from house to house with their major meetings at the temple, usually at Solomon's porch. 
But it says Saul is destroying the church, or he's trying to. And he's going to house to house to house. And notice he says he's dragging off men and women. Uh, that's unusual for this time because normally you would never see a woman being, you know, arrested or anything for her her practices because they weren't really being allowed very far in the temple. It, uh, Judaism was a very male-centric religion, but we see here that when Christianity comes about, men and women both are included. You know, they're considered equals before the Lord. Or in Judaism, that is not the case. Um, but it's just interesting that it, it mentions specifically he was taking men and women to prison. Okay. <clears throat> Another thing, most likely, Saul heard Stephen's little sermon, his little message, and um, that's one reason Saul was so enraged and wanted to destroy this church. Um, because they were basically speaking against Judaism, and he was like the, the Pharisee of Pharisees. You know, and he studied at the feet of Gamaliel, so he was like a very conservative, super conservative Pharisee. You know, so he did not like what Stephen was saying about how you killed the Christ and Jesus, Jesus was the Messiah and you killed him. You know, he, he didn't like that. But we're going to leave Saul here, and we're going to move on to Philip. Well, before you move on, I was just going to point out that, uh, like, I had heard that actually this church that was so uh, in the picture was probably maybe a church that when Saul had come from Tarsus, you know, that that was his, his country folks. And so they, you know, he was especially upset about it. says, you know, Paul's in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death, so and he was enraged against the, the teaching of the New Testament apostles. He was not okay with what they were saying. Okay? 
he was in agreement with killing Stephen, and he was a, and he began ravaging the church, those men and women. So in verse four, <clears throat> it says, "Therefore, those who have been scattered went about preaching the word." Now let's just look at that. What happened? Those who have been scattered went about preaching the word. So one big thing we're going to talk about in this chapter is obedience, obedience and faithfulness to the commands Christ had given to go and be my witnesses. So what they did not do when they were scattered is go hide out somewhere and wait for an opportunity to go back to Jerusalem when everything cooled down. Wherever they went, they went about preaching the word. That's a great example for us. So therefore, those who've been scattered went about preaching the word. But Philip went down to the city of Samaria, Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Mine says the city of Samaria. Is that what y'all says? Who, what does it say? Or did it just say Samaria? It says or, a, or a city in Samaria. A city in Samaria. Yeah, that's. So I'm not sure there. What city he went to? All we know was somewhere in the region of Samaria. So I'm about, I'll do this little map. You know, this is not to scale, just so we can kind of have an idea of what's happening here. Here's Jerusalem, Jericho. Judea, Samaria, Galilee, Gaza. Here's that road we'll see later that goes from Jerusalem down to Gaza, the desert road where he meets the eunuch. Somewhere along this road is where he runs into the Ethiopian eunuch. Somewhere along that road. We don't know exactly where. Then he's on his way home to Egypt, and then Ethiopia would be over here. Where everything's been happening here in Jerusalem, Around the temple and house to house, they've just been kind of hanging at the, hanging at home, you know. Um, great things happening, but then, you know, Saul hears Stephen speak, and he is enraged over it. Then I would think, you know, one big problem Saul has is the idea of a suffering Messiah. Because in, in first century uh, Jumeria, um, the concept of a suffering Messiah was just unheard of. I mean, that's just not what they envisioned their Messiah to be. But, um, so he begins, you know, putting people in jail, so they all flee the city. Philip, he went down to a city. Mine says to the city of Samaria. We don't know. I mean, it could be eight, just somewhere in Samaria. And he began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city, whatever city he's in here. <clears throat> now there was a man named Simon, who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. So he says that twice. Two times he says the people were astonished with his 
his magic. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And we see that again, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. All right, let's look at what's happening here. So this is the exhibition of spiritual power by Philip. Philip was not an apostle. Philip was one of the seven picked to be a deacon to serve the widow ministry at the church in Jerusalem. He was, but like Stephen, he wasn't content just to do that. You know, he was always sharing Christ because he, he he was in love with Christ and he was in love with the gospel. So I'm sure everybody he'd come across, he was open to the leading of the Spirit in this matter, and. Uh, so Philip was performing signs and wonders among the people. So there was much rejoicing in the city because all these people were being healed. But the main miracle, in my view here, was this Jew being welcomed and listened to in Samaria because uh, the Jews and the Samarians hated each other. So in like in 721 BC, Assyria captured the northern kingdom and took them off into captivity, and they intermarried with these Assyrians and the Kuthites. So they, which they were not supposed to do, they intermarried amongst these Gentiles. But when Judea, the southern kingdom, was taken into Babylonian captivity, they did not intermarry with the Babylonians. So they remained like a pure Jewish blood. And that's where the animosity comes from between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as half-breed dogs, and, well, the Samaritans returned the favor. You know, they returned animosity with animosity. So let me read you this quote here. It says, To the Jews, the Samaritans were a mongrel nation of half-breeds. The Jewish rabbis said this, quote, Let no man eat the bread of the Kuthites, or the Samaritans. For he who eats their bread is as he who eats, who eats swine's flesh. And a popular prayer in those days was, quote, And Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. They would actually pray for the Lord not to resurrect the Samaritans. I mean, they hated them. They hated each other. And you can be sure the Samaritans felt the same way about the Jews. So why was Philip's preaching so successful? He was a Hellenistic Jewish Christian. Okay, He talked to Samaritans. So the Hellenistic Jews were tolerated but not accepted by Hebrew-speaking Jews. And as Christians, they were sometimes disowned or neglected, as we saw in Acts chapter 6. So this may have fostered a feeling of kinship between the formerly dispossessed Samaritans and the recently dispossessed Christian Hellenists. That tells me that this guy thinks that most of this dispersion were mostly Hellenists who were, who were being 
arrested and imprisoned. We know the whole church didn't flee, but a lot of them did. But further, Philip's Christ-centered message discounted the importance of the Jerusalem temple. That's very important, which the Samaritans hated. They hated that the Jews had the temple, and they said you could only worship at the temple because Samaritans had no access to the temple. Yes? And Jesus did the same thing. And how many What were the Hellenists? They were like foreign Jews? They were Greek-speaking Jews who didn't grow up, who weren't born and raised in Jerusalem, in Judea. Most of the Judeas, they didn't really speak Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic. Hebrew was like a formal language for the court, for the temple, for the writing of the law and the scrolls. The everyday man on the street spoke Aramaic. But all the Hellenistic Jews that came from Tyre and Sidon and Antioch or wherever, they all spoke Greek. They were that's why they were considered Hellenistic Jews and they, they were a minority and they were not like well liked in Jerusalem, but they were tolerated. So Christ Philip's Christ centered message discounted the importance of the Jerusalem temple, which the Samaritans hated. They hated that they couldn't they they were being told you can't worship. God, because you don't have access to the temple. Okay. Remember what the woman at the well told Jesus? You know, where are we supposed to worship? And Jesus said, a time is coming when you will worship in spirit and in truth. Also, the Samaritans, were, who were looking for a prophet like Moses, because they knew the prophecies, they had the Torah, they knew what Moses had said about, God will raise up a prophet like me from among you. And they were naturally sympathetic with Philip's announcement that Jesus was the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18.15, which is Moses' prophecy that said, quote, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. So socially and theologically, the Samaritans were open to Philip. He fared far better than the apostles would have. I'm not sure if I agree with this. The Holy Spirit chose just the right man for the task at hand. Primarily, however... Philip preached with power because he loved Jesus. He was not an apostle. He was not a big shot. He was, in fact, a refugee in a hostile environment. He was not in Samaria by choice. Persecution drove him there. He probably would have liked to remain in Jerusalem. But once in Samaria, he was so full of love for Christ that he could not stop telling others about Jesus. His power came from a heart love for Christ. Before he knew it, he had a revival on his hand. Notice what it says there in verse 6. It says, The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip. So they were really receiving this message that Philip, Philip was preaching about this man Jesus being the Christ. You know, they all knew. You know, everybody knew what had happened about Jesus. It was everywhere. And so they were very open to this message that Christ had come. And he did not require temple service to work, be worshipped properly. Okay. But the people had the same response whenever Jesus was there. They believed. The yes, yes, very much so. Yeah. Well, and I think about what that, that wonderful story about the Samaritan woman. Yeah. He told me all the, you know, ever I was. And, you know, he, there was a, yeah, then the people came and they, 
They said, well, we believe not because of what you said, but because we have, we have heard it. Yeah, I mean, that just didn't stay stagnant, I'm sure. It seems like every time we see Samaritans being spoken to, they're, they're very open to the message of the gospel. And it's interesting, it says, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. It's like, yeah, here's that, that thread that goes through Acts, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Yep. I have a quick question to ask. Sure. Um, does, because I'm, I'm saying this, trying to understand it, but doesn't the cessationist position hold that the signs and wonders were used to strictly validate the apostles' authority? No. No? No. That was one purpose of to establish the authority the validity of the apostles, but also to just establish the validity of the of the message as it was being spread around. Really? Yeah. Okay. So it specifically says Stephen and Philip were both performing <coughs> signs and wonders among the people. Okay. I didn't know if cessationists. My understanding is that it wasn't just the apostles. It was the apostles and some specific, there were prophetesses, because we're going to see later that later in Philip's life, after this event, we leave Philip. And then we see him, I think it's in chapter 21. Um, yeah, in chapter 21, 8 and 9, Luke and Paul enter the house of Philip. They call him Philip the Evangelist. He has four unmarried virgin daughters who were prophetesses. So, I don't know how a cessationist could claim that only the apostles had the gifts because it's all through Acts. Lots of people in this era, when scripture's being given, the church is being established, it was not just the apostles. But... It can be like when Moses and you know had the Spirit come on, that, like with that story about Moses, that the Spirit came upon a bunch of them, but then it kind of like was outside of the group, and and the other folks had uh, this blessing too, and some of them were not so happy about that. I guess the, the, the cessationist position would be that this was a special time. And revelatory, you know, with revelations being given, kind of like when Elijah was alive and when Moses was alive. So during this about forty year span, so it's the three because I did find out. Yeah. I believe there's three periods. Yeah, during the time of Moses, great miracles were being performed through Moses. During the time of Elijah and Elisha, they performed great miracles. And each of these was about a forty year span, forty years in the desert, forty years with Elijah. 40 years, about 40 years between the death of Christ and the, the ending of the apostolic era. So they would say this apostolic era is a special time. Special gifts are being given to establish the authority of the message and of the message givers. And Philip was one of those. <clears throat> uh, let's see, where did I leave off? We were talking about the Samaritans and the Jews hating each other, right? But this this man, Simon, he heard the message, and it says 
He believed. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. He observed signs and wonders, great miracles taking place. He was constantly amazed. So everybody's amazed by these miracles. Let's continue. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Well, that's interesting. Um, now, we would all say... Right At the moment of salvation, at the moment you believe and repent, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and uh, you receive the Holy Spirit at that time. And yes, that is, you know, what we would call the normative. But what we're going to see here in these next three chapters, these things kind of happen in three different orders. So we can't pin God down and say, you have to do it this way. Because... These are, we're going to see these Samaritans receive the Spirit. And then in chapter 9, we're going to see Paul be converted. He's a very uh, conservative Pharisee. And then in the next chapter, we're going to see Gentiles, Cornelius and all his household, receive the gift. And they all kind of happen in a different order. They're all kind of they're different. So what that tells me is, we can't put God in some kind of box and we say you, it has to be this way. Okay? That's what happened here. They all heard the message. They believed the message. They were baptized. But not until these apostles from Jerusalem came and prayed and laid hands and they received the Holy Spirit. So that's kind of odd, but that's what happened. And I think one reason for that is to show to let the apostles know that these Samaritans are indeed included in this plan of salvation. That they are receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. That they're not unclean. They're not Mongols. They're beloved in the sight of the Lord Jesus because he saved them. Just like he saved the Aramaic-speaking Jews in Jerusalem. In Christ Jesus, there's no difference. Male or female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. So they're just seeing all this. None of this stuff has been written down yet. That all comes later in the letters. And where does all that come from? It comes from this. When the Samaritans are saved, they hear the gospel, they receive the gospel, they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They become part of the church. But now Simon, he saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands. He offered up money saying, give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now notice what Simon asked for. Okay? He don't ask to receive the Holy Spirit. He asked for the ability to bestow the Holy Spirit on others, because he wants to sell that. Hey, give me 14 drachmas, and I'll, I'll give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, so do we think Simon's a true believer? Probably not. His heart does not seem to be in the right place. Can we agree on that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But Peter said to him, Man, may your silver die with you because you thought you could obtain the gift the gift of God with money. 
You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, if possible. Pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. So to me, that's Paul's saying right there. You're not, you're not truly, you know, you're in the bondage of sin. You're still slave to sin. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So here he gets, Peter says, Repent and ask for forgiveness. And he says, Oh, you pray for me. He still can't get it out of his head that these men have the power. Pray that those consequences don't yeah. come on me like, So we see several times mentioned that the people were amazed at Simon and his magical art. So what was he doing? I mean, I don't know. You know, we have we have magicians today and every their whole deal is just, just misdirection, distraction. Hey, look over here while something's happening over here. You know, so I'm he, he probably was wearing this, you know, robe of stars and moons and stuff on it. He's making these appearances on stage, and he's well-known among the people. They're all amazed at him, but now suddenly Philip comes, and he's upstage and Simon. Suddenly everybody's starting to listen to Philip now, and Philip has real power. He's doing real things. And Simon's like, yeah, I want me some of that. I can make some money with that, Right? something it's like they all see that the Holy Spirit so it's like different than for us now yeah. the Holy Spirit they had to have seen something physical there was something yeah I, I wish you'd describe it more here and when Cornelius is converted it, it says they spoke in tongues and they were prophesying it doesn't specifically say what happened here but this is the first time Samaritans are baptized into the church and there was something visible I, I would say there was something they could, so they could see that these people were actually receiving the spirit. They may have been speaking in tongues. Right. We don't know. We don't know. All we know is this was the first time Samaritans are saved, and it's a special event. It's showing that the, the salvation is for all, not just for the Jew in Jerusalem. And uh, and Simon saw it, and he was like, "Yeah, I'll give here some money. Give me the authority so that I can bestow the spirit." And Peter's like, come on, man. So let's talk about that for a minute. China's mind with the company. So do we think Simon is a saved believer? I say no because the way he goes about it. You pray for me. He said, I'm not going to ask for forgiveness and repent. I want you to do it for me. I don't want to give the Holy Spirit. I want the ability to give the Holy Spirit. So his heart is obviously not in the right place. But this... It's called Simony. Who's ever heard of the sin of Simony? Anybody? Well, I had never heard of it either. But here's the the, uh, definition of Simony. It's the buying or selling of ecclesiastical offices or of indulgences or other spiritual things. And it comes from this right here. From this man, Simon, who offered the apostles money for the ability to sell the Holy Spirit for spiritual power. He wanted to exchange money for spiritual blessing. Okay, so simony is the attempt 
to obtain spiritual things through the exchange of money are under false pretenses. Okay? Does that make sense? Do you think God giggled a little bit like uh, that? I don't know. <laughs> I think he giggled. He like, what? So, in Irenaeus, one of the early fathers around 180 AD, he speaks of Simon as being the father of Gnosticism. So that's that's relative. That's relevant. I mean, we may say that's relevant. There was lots of crazy teachings. Yeah. So that kind of leads me to think, no, Simon was, he was just trying to, he just wanted a better act. Yeah. He, he wanted a better act. We specifically had been told he's supposed to repent and, and we absolutely know you don't see that he did. He did not. He, you know, if we don't repent of our sins, if we aren't acknowledging that what we've done, which he, his, he was called out, you were being wicked. Yep. And, and it's like, no, I'm not. I'm good. Like, God is good. I'm not repenting. It's probably wrong. So what, what Simon wanted was spiritual power and freedom from, from uh, he didn't want to be responsible for his actions. So he said, I'll give you money if you give me this power, and then you pray for me that none of these things happen to me. I don't serve the soft consequences of this sin, right? So let me read this to you. This is from page 115. Instead of asking for the Holy Spirit, Simon asked for the power to bestow the Holy Spirit. He actually thought he could buy the authority to bestow spiritual power on others, undoubtedly for a price. We may laugh at Simon for being so ignorant, but many Christians have believed exactly this. In church history, it is called Simony. S-I-M-O-N-Y. Or Simony. I say Simony. After this very man, W.A. Criswell has written about this. Quote, The church became a part of the state at the time of Constantine's conversion. Simony was already practiced, but it increased in the buying of ecclesiastical office and benefits. A bishop's office could be bought for so much money. The same is true of an archbishop's office, a cardinal's hat, an ecclesiastical living in a parish or in a monastery. Simony finally gave rise to the Reformation when all over Europe indulgences were sold in order to get money to build St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. I mean, I've never been, but I want to go see St. Peter's Cathedral someday. It's, you know, it's supposed to be pretty amazing. We could, no doubt, point to much of the same today, but we should mainly check our own hearts. We would be wrong to suppose this does not apply to us simply because we have not offered money for spiritual power. Simon tried to obtain spiritual power in order to promote himself. Anytime we seek spiritual power, our abilities to put ourselves forward, we make the same error. Preaching to gain recognition or status is Simony. thinking of I was listening to something this morning with, oh Andy Stanley this dude is a servant of the devil oh, I'm recording that serving with an eye to advancement in the church's power structure is Simon seeking spiritual gifts for the promotion of oneself is Simon 
even seeking to be godly so that others will think we are godly, is a type of Simon. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Remember what Jesus said, beware of practicing your righteousness before men. Okay. So that's simony. I've never heard of, heard the word until I studied this. So, in the churches, in I mean, all of society, well, I want to be spiritual. I'm, you know, and we have all this spiritual movement, but don't you dare talk about my sin. That's right. Like, oh heck no! Uh huh. I can do whatever I want. We got a lot of preachers out there pretending to be holy for money. I mean, that's rampant in America. It is rampant. Simony is rampant. So let me just read all this. This will be a typical papal indulgence from before the Reformation, when the Reformation happened. This was just a typical one that they would issue to people for money. Right? However much money, I don't know. But this is what they were doing to raise money to build this cathedral. Okay? This would be a typical papal indulgence. Just listen to this. This is crazy. I, the Pope, absolve thee from all thy sins, transgressions, and excesses, however enormous they may be, and remit to you all punishment which you deserve in purgatory on their account. And I restore you to the innocence and purity which you possessed at baptism. That's when they, you know, they baptized babies. They believe that washes away original sin. When they baptize an infant, they're washing away original sin and they're, they're, they're bringing them into a state of grace. Okay? I... Restore you to the innocence and purity which you possess at baptism, so that when you die, the gates of punishment shall be shut, and you shall not die at present. This grace shall remain in full force when you are at the point of death. That would be signed by the Pope and stamped with his seal. Okay. That's Simony, folks. Right there. <laughs> I forgive you of your sins. Okay, I'm going to give you access to the kingdom. <laughs> so this is what the, the this was the main thing the reformers were so irate about. It's the sin of Simon. It was just rampant in the Catholic Church. Rampant. All their offices were bought and paid for. You know, it was it had nothing to do with your holiness, your walk with the Lord. None of that. It was how much money, whose family do you come from? You know, who's your daddy? Stuff like that. So, so Luther and the other reformers, you know, Calvin and all up and Huss, they they asked the church, why don't you sell some of your priceless artwork to pay for this? Why are you selling these poor people these useless pieces of paper to build your cathedral? You have all the resources you need to do this, but you're fleecing the public. And that was one of their main deals. Because, um, I mean, just talking now, it's public knowledge, well established. Okay? That the Catholic Church's assets in the Vatican Bank right now exceed $15 billion. Billion. $15 billion with a B. Okay? That is just a a small smidgen of their net worth because they have 50 times that, okay? 
50 times 15 billion in artwork in the Vatican Museum. Okay. They have all these priceless works of art the Vatican owns. And at any given moment, if you walk through the Vatican Museum and you see this artwork, you're only seeing 10% of what they actually hold in artwork. At any given time, 10% is on display and 90% is in storage and being, you know, preserved or whatever. Or what? Well, they'll rotate it in. So the, so the display changes, you know. So every time you go through, you're going to see something different. 50 times what they hold just in liquid assets. Not to mention, the Catholic Church is not like like the Baptist uh, Southern Baptist Convention where each church owns their property and their building. Like, we own this, right? But that's not so for a Catholic Church. The Vatican owns. So they were the largest property holders in the world. Because of all the Catholic churches they have all over this planet, they own all that. The parish doesn't own that. The church does. So, there you go. That's Simon. What did we stop at? Where did we stop? Uh, right there, verse 25, which is the beginning of a new paragraph, which is a good place to time to stop. Yes, sir. That's not gone. Is it gone already? Time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> well, let's read verse 25. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they were started back to Jerusalem. This is Peter and John. And they were preaching the gospel to many villages of Samaritans. So notice that. The word of the Lord is preached in Samaria. The Samaritans received the message. They were baptized. They received the Spirit through... Peter and John, and then what do Peter and John start doing on the way back? They start preaching to Samaritans. So, the gospel has left Jerusalem and has entered Samaria and Judea. Our man Philip just happened to go to Samaria, but other believers are all through the area. I'm sure some went to Joppa. Oh, there's Bethany's right here. There's all kind of towns around here. There's, all, there's towns everywhere. And so Peter and John leave Samaria headed back to Jerusalem and they're preaching in every town along the way. Okay. All right. So we did not get through chapter 8. We didn't even get to the Ethiopian. All right. That's okay. Um, next week. I was going to see if you wanted me to read two sentences of this, the sect that Simon formed. You bet. It's absolutely insane. <laughs> but just let you just let you So this Simon, he went and redeemed from slavery at Tyre, a city of Phoenicia, redeemed a certain woman named Helena, and he was in the habit of carrying her about with him, declaring that this woman was the first conception of his mind and the mother of all, by whom, in the beginning, he conceived in his mind through thought of forming angels, of forming angels and archangels, and from this spirit and mind, leaping forth from him and comprehending the will of, him, of her father, 
descended to the lower regions of space and generated angels and powers when he declared this world was born. Wow. Well, that sounds I mean, completely reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds like weird science. Like me. He completely rewrote the foundation of creation and existence of all powers. Yeah. And then he went and tied himself into it and then took all the scriptures and the people after him, he began to relate all the stuff that Paul said, all the stuff that Jesus said, the Old Testament, to point to that. And he completely redid the whole thing. Sounds reasonable to me. <laughs> but so, what I said at the end is about Philip tilled the soil, right? That's Samaria. He plants a single seed with the Ethiopian. We'll talk about that next week. He leaves this huge congregation he's built, this big crusade going on in Samaria, and God sends him to this one man out in the middle of the desert. And he immediately obeys. But it wasn't the Satan plants a tear among the wheat. That's Simon. I don't believe for a minute that, that man believed anything other than he needs to make more money. And he wants attention, and he wants power, and he wants authority and influence. Pride. He wants it all. Pride. He believed like the devils believe. He was a pair among the wheat, or he tried to be, but Peter sniffed him out. <laughs> shut him down. Yeah, he shut him down. So, all right. Thank y'all for your attention. Thank y'all for coming. And, uh, yeah, it's about time to go, ain't it? Thank y'all.